Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke for you. This Jewish man calls his mom, says, Hey, Mom, I'm getting married. She goes, Oi, that's wonderful. He goes, Mom, just for fun, I'm going to come over and bring three girls, and you see if you can guess which one I'm getting married to is my fiancé. So, okay, so he brings over three pretty girls. They sit on the sofa. Mom talks to them for about a minute. She goes, It's Devon on the right. Goes, that's amazing, Mom. How do you know? She goes, I don't like her. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Robert Zuckerman. Yay. He takes photos on the sets of movies like Transformers and National Treasure, a job that I didn't even know existed. And trust us, his photos are far better than those movies. Not really hard to pull off. Coming up, author Joshua Ferris, Cocaine Bouquets, The Real Bonfire, The Vanities, Andre the Giant, Snowcavores. And someone spilled Wu-Tang on our Beatles. A mess I am happy to clean up. But first, time for small talk. So, Brendan, this week in the headlines, actually no one could read the headlines through the blinding snow, which is fine because that's what all the headlines were about. See, I read that DC was paralyzed, but I didn't realize they were talking about the snow. Right. You just thought it was like, I've seen that headline before. Another day in Rome. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) Anyway, we asked the folks at Marketplace to find the stories frozen beneath the headlines. Radabit, senior producer for Marketplace Morning Report, what's your story this week? It's a lovely Valentine's Day story. A plane arrives uh, in Amsterdam full of Valentine's flowers. Now, it arrives from Bogota, Colombia, so I think you can see where this is going. Uh Uh-oh. So, of course, they checked the boxes, and what do you know? They found tons and tons of cocaine along with the uh, Valentine's flowers. So that's what those little powder packets are in there. I never thought of it that way. That's it. George Judson. Managing Editor at Marketplace, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? McDonald's deciding it's time for a new hamburger called the McItaly. They're selling in Italy, made out of Italian hamburg, asiago cheese, artichoke paste, smoked pancetta. All right, I get it. And a side of McDiamonds. But what? what, Is there a problem with this? Well, the, the Italians think it's crap. They say it doesn't actually honor Italian cuisine. The idea, <laughs> McDonald's doesn't even honor American cuisine. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter at Marketplace. What's your story? Well, Opinion Research has just come out with the results of a survey of what annoys people most about work. Let me guess, number one was having to be at work? Number one was grumpy colleagues, Renton. Uh, then slow computers and management speak. Like touching base? Like touching base, thinking outside the box, blue skying it. So what you're saying, Stacey, is that bottom line office jargon was on their radar. Yeah, apparently it's not a value add, and it just messes with synergy. There's no eye in synergy, Stacey. <laughs> no, there's not. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history rented a romantic cabin in the Poconos, and it's soaking in a heart-shaped hot tub with its girlfriend, booze. <laughs> But the hot tub should also be full of booze. If that's, I like how you're thinking. First, (laughs) the history. This week back in 1497, the bonfire of the vanities took place. Now your guests might have read Tom Wolfe's book of the same name or seen Tom Hanks' unfortunate movie. This is a public radio audience. I think the former is more likely. But that book was written a few centuries later. Our friend Michelle Phillippe is here to tell you about the event that inspired the title. At the end of the 15th century, Florence, Italy wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs. 
It had been fun for a while. Back then, Florence was an independent city-state run by wealthy arts patron Lorenzo de' Medici. He opened his home to great painters, gave wads of cash to universities, and wrote poetry about it. But one guy kept spoiling the party, a Dominican priest named Savonarola. In fiery sermons to thousands of followers, he said Florence had become a den of corruption and sin and predicted an apocalypse that would scrub the city clean. He was right. In 1492, de' Medici died. Two years later, the French army invaded Italy, and right about that time, Italians started getting a brand new disease called syphilis. Savonarola became the new leader of Florence, and things got a lot less mellow. Case in point, on February 7th, 1497, Savonarola had Florentines fork over what he called vanities, frivolous objects like mirrors, makeup, books and art, then he had it all torched. Several paintings by Botticelli burned. Some say the artist himself threw them into the flames. Savonarola's reign didn't last long, especially when he started aiming his fire and brimstone at the Pope. Convicted of heresy, he was tortured, hung, and burned on the same spot as his famous bonfire. So that's the kind of freaky history, and now it's time for the drink. On the line is Scott Baird. He's one of the partners at 15 Romolo, a bar in San Francisco's famously Italian North Beach neighborhood. And Scott, you heard the story. What drink does it inspire you to make? It's one called the Agnello di Fuoco, which translates to the Ring of Fire. That is the best title ever. Yes, sir. So what is in this thing? We're going to work with an ounce and a half of cognac. Okay. The um, reason being? The reason being that during this guy's reign, Savonar, Savonarola's reign, uh, the French came in and made a little mess of things. Cognac so, is a French uh, liquor. Yeah. It's a brandy from a region in France. The Italians have theirs. It just doesn't usually come up to the muster of the, of the French. <laughs> As an Italian, I'll let you off easy on that. Well, because the other two elements are very Italian, and no one else comes close to them on these. Well, so, which are? Well, I've got a Vergano Americano which is fortified wine. It's almost like a vermouth. All right. Uh, and then some Vinsanto. Uh, Vinsanto is called the saint's wine because historically when it was made, they would put them in their barrels and they'd get everything going. And then they would pray because they never knew <laughs> from season to season whether or not it was going to work out. All right. Okay, and finally you're going to finish it with a dash or two of the Angostura brand orange bitters. Um, serve it up in a nice small martini glass. And then finally, this is the best part. Yes. You flame the orange oil off an orange wheel. I was going to definitely be upset if this was not a flaming drink. No, no, there's flame involved. So you take a good organic orange, you slice off like a, a disc off the outside, hold the match in between the orange and the drink, squeeze the orange, and you'll get a burst of flamed orange oil. <laughs> So it's like an art, a little fruit flamethrower there. It, it exactly is that. Yeah, and if you get a good orange, you can get a good fireball. It's apocalypse in a glass. Yes. Citrus flamethrower. God, I hope there aren't, like, school children listening to this. I'm, I'm just really happy he didn't use syphilis as a starting point for that cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Uh, don't send a card. Just be our platonic friend. On Facebook... It's facebook.com slash dinner party download. Our guest of honor this week is author Joshua Ferris. His debut novel, Then We Came to the End, launched him into literary superstardom. 
He's just released his second book, which is more serious in nature. It's called The Unnamed, and it's about Tim, a well-to-do lawyer afflicted with an unknown disease that compels him to walk to the point of exhaustion. You've said that the walking shouldn't be read as a metaphor. Why not? Anything can be read metaphorically, um, but if you're going to make a metaphor out of it, then the book becomes an allegory. This is not an allegory. It's about a man who has a disease. The disease is walking. Such agony befalls Tim, and I think ultimately there is an element of redemption, but is it tough developing this guy and then putting him through his paces like that? For example, right now I've been reading Evelyn Waugh, and he is brutal to his characters, but it's for comic effect, so it doesn't seem like it would be as hard. Well, you know, humor was something... I mean, I think there's a little bit of black humor in there, but it, it was something that I had to stay away from because if I started to lampoon the disease, I mean, it's an invented disease, and all of a sudden it would become a satire. And I had as little interest in writing a satire as I had in writing an allegory. So I had to restrain myself. My tendency is to try to be funny, and I just had to trust that I could write seriously without recourse to humor. Was that a self-imposed task? Because this, your debut novel was a pretty monstrous hit, as, as big as it can get kind of in this day and age of books, and it was very funny. I sold 15 copies. Well, at least you, well, you sold 15 copies of producers in Hollywood, so that's a good thing. But um, was, it a, was it you, like, you know what, I need to prove something to myself? No, I think it was uh, uh, adhering to the rules that were quickly established by the project itself. I was interested in thinking about disease, the sort of stripped down rawness of it that has no recourse to medical technology. And so with that in mind, it just became a darker, much more serious book than the first book. There is almost a comic Buster Keaton quality to how his, when this walking affliction hits him, he just keeps, keeps going. Yeah, it's there. Uh, you know, I mean, you can read it as, as uh, you know, sort of blackly humorous, I suppose, but it's... Uh, I mean, I wasn't laughing at him, man. I'm no, sorry, I wasn't. I, I think you can sort of laugh at him. I mean, he's doing everything he can to to retain his life, and and uh, the extreme to the extremes to which he goes to do that are at times pretty ridiculous. Well, the ridiculous is a perfect segue for our two standard questions. The first of which is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Uh, well, the nuts and bolts question that I'm tired of being asked is, where did the idea come from? I don't blame anyone for being curious. I'm curious. I can't answer the question. I have no idea. I can't reconstruct it in my, in my mind. I have no memory of the damn thing. The vehicle of the entire book disappeared? Absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. So I feel like I disappoint. All right. Well, you remembered the question. <laughs> Our second question is, tell us something that we don't know, some unknown fact about you or the world, something that we can use to impress folks at a dinner party. Well, if, I suppose if I had to answer that, it wouldn't be about me. It'd be a, a, a fact. Uh, let's call it a fact that uh, I just learned last night that Samuel Beckett drove Andre the Giant to school. Were you hitting like the mini bar with Shepard Ferry or something last night? I would, no, not, they weren't quite as crazy. This was a respectable literary couple. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick by it and say it's a true story. How could you fit Andre the Giant in your car? Well, I think he was a boy. So, you know, I mean, he just took yeah. up the back seat. Man, Brendan, I am impressed. That he could fit him in the car. The, <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That in like four minutes you went from Evelyn Waugh all the way to Andre the Giant. I'm a renaissance man. You yeah. haven't even heard my joke yet about Ionesco taking Randy Macho Man Savage to Weeblos every every week. No, I haven't. <laughs> and I never will. Uh, no lanyard for you. Dinnerpartydownload.com is our website. Please go to it quickly. Uh,
So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we see what's going on in the world of food. So, Brendan, most folks by now, especially those listening to this show, I hope, know what locavore cooking is. These are the people that look down on me when I go to Popeye's. No, those are uh, chicken box. Uh, no, those are snipers. I know they're from Chez Panisse. <laughs> no, uh, locavore chefs focus on using only fresh ingredients grown in their area. They use seasonal ingredients. People get the drift. Yeah. Well, with half the country covered in snow, it got us thinking. I like this. How can you be a locavore cook in winter when nothing can possibly grow? Exactly. You know, I can't wait to hear this. So I spoke to <laughs> Lenny Russo. He is the locavore chef at Heartland Restaurant in St. Paul, Minnesota. That is the coldest metro region in the lower 48 states, and I asked him how he does it. Well, it's probably not a surprise to you that I get asked that question very often. I guess. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways that we deal with this. The first step is during season when everything is growing, we begin preserving with an eye toward the winter. Uh, For instance, right now we have downstairs canned heirloom tomatoes and uh, pickled uh, sweet and hot peppers uh, as just two uh, examples of what we've done. Then we work with our farmers who have extended their growing seasons. There are some farmers that have a couple of greenhouses. Bushel Boy, they grow tomatoes all year long, and they're really beautiful. They have a great uh, system for that. Now, does that does that count? I mean, does it count? Isn't part of being a local? <laughs> you isn't know, part of being a local seasonal chef mean using what's in season? I guess it depends on how you want to frame that. For the most part, the greenhouse crop that we're using greens over the winter we have uh it would be almost impossible to have a restaurant anywhere in the country if you didn't have a green salad on the menu so there's a little bit of unseasonality if you want to call call it that just out of necessity right just out of necessity but for us that's preferable to going to california or to another region of the country to uh, have something trucked in which you know brings to mind the fact that san francisco and southern california these are all places there's a lot of locavore kind of chefs and there's a big locavore movement. Mm -hmm. Is there some bitterness in you where it's sort of like, well, yeah, all those people get, you know, the interest and the attention, but I'm the one who's got the challenge over here, damn it, (laughs) trying to keep things seasonal. Well, I wouldn't call it bitterness. There might be a tinge of jealousy every once in a while, Um, but, you know, you'd make do with what you have, and it in some respects, it's kind of liberating. I mean, you can get stuff from all over the world, and and so the palette you're working with is enormous. So when you create a box for yourself, the palette's set. We're, we're focused. For me, at least, I think it's liberating. So, Rigo, I've had the good fortune of actually eating at Heartland, and the food is huh. really, really delicious. But, man, I think you let them off too easy. It, it is cheating. What is? This greenhouse rule, like, destroys their whole philosophy. I don't think that that's such a big deal. It's still local, and it's just a small part of what they serve. But it's like having, like, a Halloween party on the 4th of July, man. It's not acceptable. But that sounds fun a- to and me. And plus, I'm sure their candy's boring, too, because <laughs> they're locavores. <laughs> and Thanks for the apple. And that's the dinner party. Is this down- razor blade local? <laughs> and that's the dinner party download for this week. Keep up with us between shows at dinnerpartydownload.com. Thanks to Annie Baxter and Mark Sanchez for helping us set the table. Thanks also to Skylight Books. And we now leave you as always with One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. This is from a DJ named Tom Karuama. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Think, yes. He's not the first person to tempt EMI's lawyers by doing a Beatles mashup, but he's among the few to have done it well. Wu-Tang Clan meets the boys from Liverpool. It's called Forget Me Not. Bon appétit. Ghetto princess told me she settled out in Fleshing Meadow. Fly chick, rockin' size six stiletto. Straight down to 
with suede. I serenade for the moment. Then we part ways with the church girl quiet at home. Hugging the pillow phone. Now you're grown, rolling bones, holding your own. I admire attire, be bold, just like your attitude. Jewels from head to toe, glowing natural. I'm after you. Your style's what I'm attracted to. Really seen to keep it moving when you do pass through. Knowing when we bump heads, we will soon bump hips. To be swimming in the ocean of love that's some shift. Hoey with the tight grip, come thunderous. To wake up, reminiscing and spark the blunt clip. Have you loving it? Wondering if I shall return. Forget me not. Eternally the flame burns. Forget me not. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Enrico, I'm going to be honest with you. I never really got waiting for Godot. You don't get it? Maybe I'll get some of this. Oh, and a brutal body slam from Beckett. 